today on the Circle of Knowledge podcast. Concept of justice and how it differs in every culture. And as an Indigenous person, uh, we have our natural laws that help us connect to us, to, to the people around us, to the world around us, to the animals and the land. When they're talking about justice, they are talking about how do we deal with this specific problem that's affecting this person, but it does require us as a community to come together and to have that conversation and to look at things um, with a more compassionate understanding that things are connected to each other and we do have a responsibility to this individual. Today on our Circle of Knowledge Indigenous Speaker Series, we have a panel discussion titled Restoring Justice. This is a conversation about Indigenous representation and narratives and how it connects to our understandings and experiences of justice. Our panel discussion will be hosted by Hunter Cardinal. He is an actor and Indigenous myth architect, co-founder and director of Story at Nahayawin and Cree from Northern Alberta Treaty 8 Territory. Our panel participants are Molly Swain, Ota Pimsiu, Métis, Molly is a PhD student in Indigenous Studies at the University of Alberta, co-host of Métis in Space, an Indigenous feminist science fiction podcast, and a member of Freelance Free Peoples, an Indigenous prison abolitionism project. We also have Jamie Medicine Crane. Jamie is Blackfoot from Kainai and Bigani Nations in Southern Alberta. Jamie is a faculty developer with college learning and teaching development at Norquest College. We also have Kyle Musica. Kyle is Métis and Cree from the Lesser Slave Lake region in Treaty 8 Territory. He works with CBC Unreserved, a national Indigenous radio program broadcast across Canada, the United States, and Australia. Kinanaskamatin, enjoy the discussion, and we look forward to seeing you at our next event. Well, um, I'm really excited to uh, be here to be having this conversation, and we're in a bit of a, a different format right now. We're in a, a circle, as you can tell. Um, and one of the reasons we're doing this today is uh, we're, we're reincorporating and almost revitalizing and applying an indigenous idea of how we create a full understanding of not only uh, tools or objects, but also ideas. So if we were gathered in a circle around a tree, as we do every Friday, um, and we're trying to figure out, okay, well, what is this tree? What, is it, what does it look like? How can we understand it? I would say, this is what I see from my perspective in this circle right now, or the square, rather. We go around the circle, and I can see from your perspective your side of the tree, but once we get to the other side of the circle, I can't really see what's on that side. Hi. <laughs> um, I need the person on the other side, I need their perspective to really understand what we're talking about. And then as we complete this circle, what we've done is we created a multi-dimensional understanding of whatever it is that's in the center. So this conversation is not to find out the one right answer, but it is rather to make space for multiple perspectives, to create that ethical space, to create that opportunity to have these discussions, to interact with each other. So what we'll be doing is we'll be putting this idea of justice in the center of the circle, of media representation in the center of the circle, and we'll be sharing our perspectives on that. Um, but before we do that, I think it'd be great to introduce our lovely panelists here today. So starting to the left, Jamie, would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself, the work that you do, anything you want? Okay, Nick Sokwa, Ida Meskinatini, Nistuna Danako Aksiasuaki, 
Hello, all my relations. My name is Jamie Medicine Crane. Uh, my traditional name is Brave Woman. I come from the Blackfoot Territory in southern Alberta. And uh, it's such an honor to be here in this traditional territory of the Cree, the Dene, the Blackfoot, the Soto, the Sioux, the Métis, and many nations that make this place their home. Uh, I am currently a faculty member here at Northwest College. Uh, my official title is Faculty Developer Advisor. Although um, I do provide a lot of professional development for our faculty and staff here at the college, I also uh, a curriculum developer, and I've had an opportunity to put my, per put my um, I guess, shared knowledge uh, to use when I, when I do my curriculum development work. Uh, one of the programs that I had a hand in uh, helping develop here at the college is the new justice program that will be coming out. And we have about 28 courses uh, that I reviewed, all of them to ensure that Indigenous perspectives, history, and culture is included in, into the program. Uh, I also um, support the indigenization strategy here at the college. And um, I'm an advocate uh, in the community. I do a lot of performing and advocacy work around Indigenous women and rights. Amazing. Thank you. Kyle, what's good? I'm not sure how I'm supposed to follow that up. Holy smokes. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Um, so my name is Kyle. I, I work at CBC. I work for CBC Unreserved. Um, and uh, that's on Treaty 6 territory. I'm really grateful to be here with everyone. Um, I, so I've worked at CBC for about four years, um, and uh, you know I wanted to be a journalist ever since I was a young Métis little boy. Uh, I was about nine, and uh, so I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, I do a lot of work with um, with uh, committees, sort of inside the CBC, to try to uh, diversify our media a little bit, um, indigenize our media a little bit, um, and I'm just looking forward to to sharing the stage with uh, these three wonderful people today and. Uh, and yeah, that's pretty much it. Amazing, thank you. Great. Yeah, uh, hi, my name is Molly Swain. Um, I'm a Métis woman. I actually grew up in Calgary uh, on Treaty 7 territory. Um, and yeah, I'm also very excited to be here with these awesome folks. This is great. Uh, so a little bit about me. Um, as I mentioned, I'm Métis. I'm currently a PhD student at the Faculty of Native Studies. Um, I haven't quite started my research yet, but I'm hoping to do either or slash and some kind of project around uh, 20th century Métis history and or either uh, Métis political relationships with other than human beings. Um, I'm also co-host of an indigenous feminist science fiction podcast called Otopemsus Goyawak Gitsikisikuk Métis in Space, uh, which you can check out if you are at all interested in any of those things. Um, I also, Métis in Space is doing currently a, a land raiser, we call it, for a project called Back to the Land, Two Land, Two Furious, where we're hoping to get a quarter section of land where we can bring uh, urban indigenous youth out to the land who might not get a chance to go otherwise to learn cultural and language skills and practices out there. Um, I also uh, have co-founded a group with Carrie, there uh, she is, um, called Free Lands, Free Peoples, which is an indigenous prison abolitionism group here in Edmonton, uh, which um, I'm also very, very excited um, to keep developing uh, that over the next little while. Yeah, I think that's about it. 
Amazing. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Um, if at any point you want to have a conversation with someone in the circle and you need a mic, just let me know and I'll pass mine over. Um, so I guess just the first question, we can start, whoever wants to start, if we want to take a second to think it out, you've been voluntold that uh, you're going first. Um, so how do we fix this? No, I'm just kidding. Um, so to you, what is our current society's definition of justice? And where does it come from? And um, when I mean current society, why don't we just say Canada right now in all that complexity? And uh, let's see where, where our thoughts take us. Uh, sure. So, um, so Canada's justice system is obviously very European by virtue. I mean, um, just by virtue of who designed it, right? Uh, you know, statistics generally show that, you know, people from marginalized communities, indigenous communities often have higher incarceration rates than their white counterparts. So, you know, there's hardly ever a system that's been developed uh, by a person that does not benefit the person that developed it, right? So, um, obviously, indigenous people have been overrepresented in the justice system for, for decades. Um, but, our, you know, our definition of justice, I think, also sort of expands into how we decide to treat people who end up in the system. Um, you know, the, the justice system here has had restorative justice practices in, uh, in, the, in the Canadian justice system for like 40 years. But I saw a study that was published in March of 2018 that said over half of Canadians don't even know what restorative justice is, which I find really interesting. I think, I think media has a lot to do with that, and I'm sure that we're going to get into that a little bit later. Um, but there's this like really like monochromatic idea of like if you do the crime, you do the time, um, that might sort of worth be worth revisiting, um, especially because there's lots of discussion around restorative justice and how effective it's been. Um, and obviously it's been effective enough that Canada has, has sort of taken it as part of its own system. Um, but I think society as a whole should be more aware of it instead of people just, uh, you know, thinking that it's just if you do a crime, you get jail time kind of thing. Totally. And if you were to be talking to one of those uh, members of, of our society today about restorative justice, what's, um, I guess, what's an easy way of describing it? Because it is, it is a different idea from what I understand from you do the crime, you do the time. Totally. Uh, restorative justice is just this idea uh, of rehabilitation. Um, so if, you know, if a person uh, you know, commits a crime, instead of putting them in jail and then uh, releasing them right back into the cycles that they were in prior, um, you know, it's, it's sort of about rehabilitating and sort of uh, giving them systems and support systems to sort of help... Uh, sort of help them, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm searching for the term, but just sort of this idea of, I guess, making sure that they aren't going into the same cycles that they were, that they left when they had been put into the criminal justice system. I'm sure these two ladies can expand on that definition a little bit. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I'd like to take up a little bit what you were saying. Um, I think justice uh, sort of in mainstream or white stream Canada, uh, you know, this idea of you do the time, you do the crime is also hyper-individualistic, and I think it really sort of reflects uh, sort of a Euro-Canadian or Eurocentric idea of like the fetishization of both the individual and of property. Um, and so I think it's really important as well when we think about how we define justice, we're also defining um, how we treat people not only who, who commit harm, whatever that harm looks like, but also people who experience harm. Uh, I think that our current definitions of justice really focus on the person that, that does the harm rather than the person that experiences the harm. And so, like, thinking about something like um, imprisonment, how does imprisonment necessarily, or does it, or can it always be 
inherently good for the person that experiences harm, right? How does that heal people who've experienced harm um, just to have that person be away? Obviously, that can be an aspect of healing. Um, but how do, we, how do we understand sort of the function of justice um, as being sort of a, a broader or more holistic um, idea, I guess? Um, I think the other thing that sort of our current quote-unquote justice system um, does is that it really uh, defines or determines sort of among a lot of things um, who uh, is able to commit harm. So what is harm? Like what counts as harm? Who counts as being able to commit harm? And then who is able to experience harm? And so I think that for Indigenous people, um, as Kyle mentioned, we're obviously overrepresented uh, in the criminal justice system. Um, as and we're sort of always already criminalized, but at the same time we're always already victimized um, to the point where we are sort of almost outside of being able to experience harm. And you see a lot of that through media and through sort of the discourse of harm, you know, and, and how we define what justice is and what harm is. Totally. Um, do you think you could expand a little bit more? You were talking about the fetishization of people and the, the lands, did, or, or you were talking about that at the very beginning? Yeah, so this is the, the hyper-individualization of uh, justice. Yeah, can yeah. you expand just a little bit more about that? I find that is pretty fascinating when we're talking about um, not only is there multiple definitions of justice, but there's also differing worldviews as well, which can lead to entirely different concepts of what justice is. Um, but just kind of like teasing out the current worldview that defines justice. I was wondering if you can expand on that just like a little bit more. Yeah, and I think, I think Kyle touched upon this a little bit as well. Um, when we think about uh, when, you know, when he brought up sort of like this idea of cycles, you know, people are re-entered into these cycles without um, any change or any rehabilitation. Uh, I think that our current model of justice sort of presupposes that people are somehow distinct from their communities and situations in which they live, in which they find themselves, right? And so the conditions that create opportunities for people to do harm or force people to behave in ways that are harmful um, are sort of separated from what the person does. The person becomes completely distinct from their environment, which I think is not an incredibly useful way of understanding justice or bringing people justice. Uh, so thinking about, um, include, and also for people who experience harm, right? That harm is seen as sort of like outside the broader conditions that in a lot of ways create that space where harm can happen. So when we're thinking about justice, how do we start, if we want to start changing our conception of it, how do we start thinking about justice as a holistic or environmental set of conditions rather than just an individual set of actions that occur between, you know, two people or a small group of people. And that, I think, you know, starts to implicate all of us in uh, the work of what justice is. Yeah, there's a, it reminds me a little bit about the um, stories of um, uh, the Wittigo or the Windigo in, um, that you can actually find in the, uh, I, th I think there's some like legal like court cases where they're talking about these stories of these um, essentially cannibal or these carnivorous spirits. Um, and when they're talking about justice, they are talking about how do we deal with this specific problem that's affecting this person, but it does require us as a community to come together and to have that conversation and to look at things um, with a more compassionate understanding that things are connected to each other and we do have a responsibility to this individual. Um, so I think that that's like pretty different right there. Yeah. Jamie, what you got? 
For me, I, I, I really believe like what the two of you have been saying, and um, I guess it's that concept of justice and how it differs in every culture. And as an Indigenous person, uh, we have our natural laws that help us connect to us, to, to the people around us, to the world around us, to the animals and the land. And I think that as, as we look at the justice system, um, it, it conflicts with uh, the natural laws, uh, the way that um, it's set up, because it's not set up um, to treat people uh, with, with um, I guess, with equity. When we look at when we look at some of the systems that face our people, our people have been through oppressive systems right from the beginning. And when the justice system came into uh, North America. At first, it was used to be used against us, and I think you mentioned that, Molly. Um, and you th you look at how our systems have been set up, and even like in residential schools, the first model came from a men's prison down in Boston. And so, if we look at how the system, the first jail here in uh, Canada was in 1835, like 32 years before. Uh, before Canada was a country officially. And so when these systems have been put into place and used against our people, you see that um, the marginality between our people and you see the differences that our people face. And I think that for myself, um, I face this directly because our family has gone through the system for so, so many reasons, you know, and, and within the past, five, six years, my family has been going to court for uh, murdered and missing indigenous women and men cases. And seeing, seeing the results at the end is heartbreaking because uh, sometimes you, you wonder if, if our people were a different race, would the system be different? And there's so many things that when I look at the, um, justice, um, I think about um, our traditional ways of being and, and the way that our natural laws connect to the way we respect each other, the way we take care of each other, but not just us, the land, the animals, the cosmos, and how we're directly related to everything. Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about the origins of natural law for, I guess, the, the Blackfoot or the Nitsitapi? Because sure. I, I think um, like we just talked about like where the, the law came from that Canada's using. I think it would be great to expand a little bit more about one example of another form of law. Uh, so for the Blackfoot, um, one, of, one of our words um, is niksokwa, which means all our relations. Uh, it's very similar to wakotawin um, in Cree. Um, but it's the foundation of the law and how we're all connected and how we relate to each other and that interconnectedness. And it's kind of like um, a spider web and how if we were, we were all one of those main holders of the spider web, if one of us dropped that, that piece of the web, it would start kind of to break down. And so that's the way I see our, our traditional law, our um, Nitsitabi law, is that um, when 
when we are all working together, we're, we're having a healing, you know, we have that healing together. Uh, when we're working separately, um, it disconnects us. And so when we look back at our, our traditional ways of living way back, uh, we were a very, um, very communal, communal um, communities. Mm -hmm. uh, we, were, we depended on each other, we worked with each other, and we lived in harmony. But now today, we're very individual. It's very individual in this society. And so we look at our individuality more than how we, we, ref how we connect with each other. And I think that when I look at, when I look at our traditional ways, like, um, these have been since time immemorial, and these laws have been passed down from generation to generation through our languages, through our songs and our stories, and how we connect and how we, how we relate to each other. And I think that when, when I talk about natural law, I talk about, like, sometimes, well, sometimes that has been disconnected from many of our people. So many of our people might not understand our natural laws, but then they also feel that disconnection from Canadian law and how, um, how that kind of overlaps or relates to each other. Absolutely, yeah. Um, are there any other thoughts about, um, I guess, how uh, Indigenous worldviews has perhaps impacted your personal definition of, of justice or the law? Uh, so, well, I think, um, you know, one of the things that's very clear is that Canadian law, and this has been said, um, cannot bring justice for Indigenous people. Like, I hesitate to even say that justice is possible on stolen land. Um, what is sort of justice in individual contexts when this entire country is founded on the genocide and expropriation of Indigenous life and the destruction of Indigenous life? Um, you know, thinking about um, the, the death of Colton Bushy, for example, um, and his killer was acquitted, right? Like this idea that this white man there did not commit a crime, there was no wrongdoing there, uh, right? It gives you a sense of sort of the, the worth, or I guess the worthlessness of Indigenous life, um, and then sort of the gall that the state has to try to, to inculcate us in its uh, justice system um, is sort of kind of mind-blowing. Uh, and I think to, you know, to take up what Jamie said, it, like, I think it, it really bears sort of repeating and underscoring that um, our laws and our sense of justice as Indigenous people um, was developed over millennia and passed down over millennia uh, because it works, because it keeps communities in equilibrium. It reestablishes balance in communities where there are ruptures or where there are issues. Um, Whereas thinking about, you know, Euro-Canadian justice, you know, um, even like a European sense of justice, the idea of prisons as these holding places as punishment is only a few hundred years old, even in Europe, right? And so you sort of have these two systems um, and we, we give so much weight to this Eurocentric system when it's new, it's not been around for very long and, you know, all of the information, all of the research demonstrates that it doesn't actually do the healing work that... Canada says that it does. And next to that we have, you know, our own Indigenous laws, which are different but have a lot of very similar underpinnings um, that, you know, helped our, our own societies and our own nations grow and thrive and live together um, and allow us within our own nations to live together for, for many millennia. Um, and I think that that really 
is an important thing to think about when we're thinking through ideas of justice. What does justice look like on this land? And you know, I think it's really important that we connect it outwards to everything that's going on. It's not just about this, this idea of this so-called justice system. The so-called justice system permeates every aspect of Canada's occupation here. Yeah, and I, I, I was, um, like, we're, I'm trying to put together like a show on Indigenous law, and one of the things that I was looking at, there was a story from Calgary a couple months ago of a, there's an Indigenous court there now, um, and the, uh, one of the, the judges can speak Blackfoot. And one of the quotes that he, one of the quotes that he said really stuck with me. He said that in our language, there's no word for crime. Uh, it's only, there's only a word for it. We call that a mistake. And so, you know, I think that that, like, bouncing off what Molly said, you know, there's, there's this idea of there's two completely different trains of thought around justice between Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to watch the, you know, the justice system play out and how it has, you know, uh, you know statistics show that it's been, um, you know, incredibly harmful for Indigenous people. Um, and so wondering how, you know, and I think we'll get into this later, but wondering how we sort of mesh the two because, um, you know, there's been lots of scholarship around people trying to tinker with the system, but does that really work? Where, you know, we're not really sure at this point, so. Absolutely, that's a great point. I was just writing that down. Um, so in this, uh, this Western perspective of what justice is, what the, the legal system is, how to maintain it as a system, um, what role do you often find indigenous peoples play in that definition and and what are the impacts or even different types of impacts of this um, very um, perhaps a punitive carceral system um, to implement justice? As we look at the justice system, indigenous people are, over, and Kyle mentioned this and Molly as well, um, our people are overrepresented in the institutions. There's an unbalance of equity when it comes to the laws and the way people are sentenced. There are unspoken biases, stereotypes, and racism that pe our people face daily. Many people who I've spoken with and my own personal experience share that it should be called an unjustice system as it seems it favors certain groups of people and indigenous people are one of those groups that are not favored. Hundreds of years of colonization and oppressive systems has impacted our people deeply, emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And because of colonization, our people continue to face and suffer, and we see the impacts in our communities as they are faced with third world conditions, with high levels of poverty, unclean and unsafe drinking water, high levels of suicides, addictions, health issues such as diabetes, cancer, and the list goes on. The way the justice system has operated since the beginning was used to, it, used to control our people. We talk about the forts that um, are held in almost every major city across this nation. And at one time, that was a place where they held our people. They imprisoned our people. And even just looking at you know, the, the prison system being built in 1835 here in Canada, and the history of the residential school model, you could see how our system has been broken down as indigenous people. There is um, a father by the name of Father Lacombe, 
and he um, he got to know the Blackfoot people. He met with the Blackfoot people. He even learned Blackfoot language. And um, my late elder, Narciss Blood, my relative, he talked. He shared with me that this is you know. This gentleman came into our community and he wanted to help our people. And when he came into our community, um, he learned about us, he learned our languages. But then he turned around and he went back to the government and he told them, there's three things that you need to do to break our people. The first thing you need to do to break the people is that you need to take their land away from them because they're directly connected to the land and everything they do comes from the land or they're grateful for the land, they give back to the land. So they put us on reservations, they put us in small areas. The second thing that um, he said to do was to take our spirituality away because we're very spiritual people, we're connected to, to everything and that's a part of the Niksokwa or Wikotuan. Uh, and then the third thing, and so we weren't allowed to um, celebrate our sun dances, our ceremonies. We weren't even allowed to gather at one time. If we gathered even in a group like this, we would all be thrown in jail. Um, and then the third thing that he said was take away their children. Uh, because everybody in the community evolves around that. Everyone raises the child. And so when you take these three things away from these people, you're going to break them. And they have no choice. And so that's when our children were started to put into residential schools. Later on, we see the 60s scoop. Now we see the foster system continuing from that, which they say that is uh, larger than the residential schools. Children, more children are being taken away from their kids even today than um, back in residential schools. And Alberta was one of the provinces that had the most residential schools and the most residential school survivors. And so when I look at um, how, how indigenous people play a role in that, um, the impacts are evident. The impacts our people are in the systems and so how how do we change a system that has been oppressing us for hundreds of years how do we change a system so that um, it's a just system for all of us and not just for certain groups and, and that's a really good point because um, we're starting to and, and I think we'll go there for sure I wrote it down so we'll definitely get to it um, uh, who knows but um, this idea of who the current justice system serves, is it a who? Is it a person? Is it a group of people? Or is it a what? And I'm just curious about everyone's thoughts on that right now. Because for me, I'm looking at this more as a systemic issue, um, as opposed to perhaps um, a certain group of people with a certain agenda. But I'm curious about your opinions on that. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting um, point to bring up. And I think it, it really bears sort of like teasing apart uh, sort of more in depth. Um, I think when Jamie was talking, one of the things that, uh, well, I guess two of the things that really got me thinking was uh, first, um, the Métis exclusion from uh, the parameters of the TRC and the 60 scoop inquiry, right? And so again, it's this idea of Canada in its wisdom, quote unquote, right, deciding who is 
who is owed justice and under what circumstances, right? And, and the ways in which the state continues to divide us in order to control us, I think is really important when we think about these big movements towards justice um, that Canada tells us that it's doing. So like the TRC, people call it this watershed moment, and it absolutely was. The TRC is extremely important, but what does it mean that an entire you know, group of people who were also subject to these, these horrors um, are excluded and sort of just not talked about in this conversation? Um, the second thing that this really brought up for me in thinking about is it systemic um, and who's benefiting uh, was uh, Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government's refusal to honor Jordan's principle, which Cindy Blackstock has been working on tirelessly for years and years. Um, what does it mean when the Prime Minister of this country is refusing to do, basically just to stop being absolutely monstrous in one particular way? That, that's all that's being asked of him. Actually, it's being ordered of him by his own governmental structures, and he's what refused, what, seven non-compliance orders or something along those lines, right? That's absurd, right? So where where is the justice in that? That to me is like an incredibly serious, monstrous crime with no oversight and no accountability. So when we think about is this systemic or is this individuals, I absolutely, if it wouldn't be a system if individuals weren't benefiting, I think is, is sort of how you boil that down. And so I think that, you know, there, there is a balance there, right? Because it's not like we can say, you know, this, these are the people that are settlers and all of these settlers are benefiting in exactly the same way to the exact same degree from the injustice that Indigenous people are experiencing. That's not necessarily true, right? Because if we say that, it shuts off, I think, certain modes of solidarity that we can start to build among people, which I think is really important. At the same time, we need to recognize that all of us are complicit, and I include myself in this as a Métis woman um, and as an Indigenous woman. Uh, you know, we're all benefiting in some ways, some more or less than others, from the injustices that go on here and in Canada's name abroad as well. And so it's really important that we, we are all implicated in these systems in different ways, and they harm us for sure, really severely. But, you know, it is, it is a complicated thing. Systems are complicated, but systems work in the interests of groups of people. Does that make sense? Totally. It, to me, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, you did you want to? You want to get in on this? Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, uh, amazing points by by both uh, Jamie and and Molly. Um, yeah, I think I think at the same time, um, what Molly said is bang on. I mean, if it systems hardly benefit, uh, or systems hardly are created without a beneficiary, right? And so. Um, when, when we're unpacking this type of stuff, we, you know, and we really need to think about sort of, I guess, um, almost like revamping the system. I, I just wanted to read, um, this is pretty long, but I think it's really important. Um, the, uh, so Harold Johnson, he recently wrote a book called uh, Peace and Good Order, The Case for Indigenous Justice in Canada. Uh, it just came out in September. I'm like knee deep in like 40 books and reports and stuff like that. So I haven't gotten to it yet, but, um, nice. we just, we, yeah, uh, it's not nice. We just had him on the show. Uh, we just had him on the show a couple weeks ago, very briefly to talk about his book. Um, and it was really interesting to hear him speak because, so he's Cree, he's from uh, Saskatchewan. He's a former crown prosecutor and, uh, he was inspired to write this book, um, after he quit his job because he didn't feel like he could, uh, that he felt like he was contributing to a system he didn't, he didn't believe in. Um, and he was also sort of inspired, I think, to write the book after what happened to Colton Bushi. Um, and so he did a Q&A with Atai, which is a publication in Vancouver a little while ago. 
Um, and so this is him speaking. And I just wanted to share this because I think it's really interesting to hear somebody who has been within the system, working within the system for so long, and hear what he has to say. So this is him speaking. I was at a conference last winter when, uh, when <clears throat> sorry, I was at a conference last winter when Ovid Mercury spoke. He said that his first conference was in 1970 on a boat on Lake Winnipeg, and the topic was Indians and the justice system. So we've been talking about this for 50 years. When I went to study at university, I remember conferences in the 90s, so I've been personally involved for 30 years. I've come to law conferences and symposiums that talked about Aboriginal people in the justice system, and they were all really good. We had coffee, we were really well fed, speakers would stand up and speak, and we'd keep talking about it. We'd bring in more experts, and we'd keep having these conversations amongst ourselves. What we need to do is go out on the street and ask somebody, especially women, to come in and explain to us what justice means, and we never do that. We keep it academic, we keep it in the hotel, we keep it in the conference center, and it never changes. We knew in 1970 there was a problem, and by 1990, Canada recognized there was a problem, so it started to change legislation. And we knew that there are too many Aboriginal people in the correctional centers and in the prisons, so we changed the criminal code. Parliament added a section in the criminal code telling judges that they had to take into account the unique circumstances of Aboriginal people when sentencing and to use jail as a last resort, but nothing changed. In 1999, the Supreme Court in R versus Gladue tells judges across Canada they have to pay attention to what the legislation says. They spell it out for them really clearly. This is how it works and this is what you are supposed to do, but nothing changed. The incarceration rates continued to climb. The Supreme Court came back in 2012 and said, hey judges, we told you and glad you that you have to do this, now damn well do it. The incarceration rates still continue to climb. So even when they try to make a change, they can't. They cannot fix this. The machine is too big. They're not going to fix what's going on in our communities by tinkering with that system. And change, any change that is effective has to be fundamental. We have to change some of the fundamental ideas around justice. We have to get out, rid of the idea of deterrence. It does not work. All the evidence shows that deterrence is a failure and it's actually making things worse. So I know that was long, but it was, when I read it, that, that was incredibly powerful for me, um, especially as a, as, as a Cree person myself and him being a Cree person, a former prosecutor, to read that, that was incredibly powerful because he really gave me some perspective on you know, feeling disenfranchised from a system that he, you know, at least at some point believed in, right? Yeah, and one thing that's coming up in my mind is um, often, uh, and my sister's much better at talking about this, um, we're talking that typically indigenous peoples are almost canaries in the coal mine for certain issues that right now looks like are just affecting indigenous peoples, but actually do um, have implications on the larger, I guess, cross-section of, of society as a whole. So. I'm curious, when we're talking about who benefits from these systems, when we're talking about, I guess, who, who, that the beneficiaries of that machine that you mentioned, um, is it like one group of people, or is it like a very small selection of individuals? Um, or, or, once again, like, is it a very uh, specific part of the, um, the system? I'm just curious, because like, what I find when we're talking about this is there can be perhaps an unintentional antagonism that pops up when we're talking about injustice. To claim that there is an injustice has people go, whoa, no, no, you're unjust. Um, so I, I guess I want to kind of uh, tease that out right now. We're going off the script, but I'm curious your thoughts. Jamie? Uh, unfortunately, uh, we see the system benefiting mostly color, the way that I see it. 
um, with with my family um, and having having all of these I guess encounters with the law and not just with murdered and missing indigenous women just uh, certain like traffic violations and um, maybe you know the sentencing is just very very heavy on indigenous people and when I look at the beneficiaries, it's not just the skin color. It's also that systematic. Um, it, it, it's very deep. It runs very deep that impacts our people uh, because um, it was a system that was designed to be used against us right from the beginning. So if we're talking about a justice system, um, how is it just for all um, if it's just benefiting one group of people? And unfortunately, most of the time it's skin color. Yeah, it makes me think, because like around the time that, it was, what was it, 1835 was the first justice system? we start seeing a very slow increase in paternalistic practices from the government. But that's talking, that was trying to help the, the system of empire that Canada was a part of, or I guess the Dominion of Canada. No, it wouldn't be the Dominion, the Crown um, at that time. Sorry, Canada Confederated, 1867. It was not Canada then. I'm so sorry, everyone. Um, but you see that there is a need to build the infrastructure for that system, which was the crown, which was the colonies that the crown was um, controlling. And then therefore that justice system is put in place to reinforce and make sure that those resources are, are being um, given to, I guess, that system, um, which is, th that's kind of what's coming to my mind right now. Um, Anyone else have any thoughts? Oh, Can yeah, I yeah, just yeah. Ta talk Let's about, jam. like, um, you're, you mentioned patriarchy, and um, I think that that's one of the biggest conflicts with our people is because our societies were based on matriarchy. We had a very matriarchal societies, and when patriarchy came in, um, it, it, like, I guess it flipped everything upside down because um, as women, we were, were the natural leaders in our communities. And um, I remember an elder telling me one time when, um, when one of the first boats came over and they started talking to the native people, they said, bring us all your leaders. And they brought them the women and they started laughing. And you think about that, and you also think about like how um, how it's a patriarchal system, and how women overseas, over the big pond, were fighting for feminism for th hundreds of years already prior to coming here. So you could already see that imbalance of how patriarchy favors one side than the other. Even when you go to um, even when you go to the big house in Ottawa, and you you go into the legislature and you see all of the people or all of the um, politicians, a majority of them are white middle class men. And so how is that a balanced system even when we talk about patriarchy within our own society now? Absolutely. Yeah, I think, I think these are really, really good points. I'm really glad that um, we're, we're starting to talk a little bit more about patriarchy. I think that's really foundational to this discussion. Um, I think, uh, Hunter, to your question, um, first I want to say, I don't think antagonism is necessarily a bad thing. Go on. I'm actually fairly pro-antagonist. I like being antagonistic. Okay. Um, and I think, uh, you know, defensiveness, I think, is the thing that we should be addressing. 
and fragility cool. is what we should be addressing rather necessarily than antagonism. I think part of what we've seen, um, you know, thinking about my own people's history here in Alberta uh, with, um, you know, the, the organizing that was being done in the 30s and 40s um, around the Métis Association of Alberta, which is now the Métis Nation of Alberta, uh, and then of course throughout the prairies as we began developing um, organized political organizations in the 20th century, um, a lot of what we found is that um, if we try to play their game, using their tactics of civility, we don't necessarily get as far as we want to. We don't, get, we don't gain what, what we're trying to gain from it. I don't think playing to what is essentially white civility is necessarily going to get us what we want because it's not been working. Uh, I think what we need to do is what we need to start addressing, and you know, I mean this individually and I mean this you know, working it out in groups and I mean a big systemic change, is we need to place a higher emphasis on truth-telling than we do on, civil, on civility. If I'm angry and I tell you the truth, it doesn't make it any less the truth, right? Um, so I think one of the things that we can all do, and maybe a way to reframe this conversation uh, sort of more broadly uh, as we're having it, as we're sort of like working through our ideas of justice and injustice, um, is to start thinking about, rather than trying to be defensive and saying, oh, this is my fault, I have to take all this responsibility right now and bloody blue, maybe instead what we can start saying is, how am I implicated in this? Because we are, we are all implicated in it, you know, as I mentioned before. And so if we, we start from the baseline that we all have responsibilities, that we're all implicated, that we are responsible to one another, right? Thinking about Wakoto and thinking about all of my relations. Um, what work can we then do? And how does that, instead of putting us on the defense, of putting us on the back foot, how does that allow us to step forward into doing that work? And if we start stepping forward and we start taking that responsibility really actively, what does that mean when people confront us antagonistically or in ways that we feel hostile about. It's harder to push us back if we're already stepping forward, I think. Um, so in terms of, yeah, thinking who benefits small and large groups, obviously, you know, the, the main people that are benefiting are these middle, upper middle, upper class, um, you know, white, predominantly white, predominantly men um, who are gaining just massive amounts of material capital from, from our lands. Um, you know, I, I really love your sort of like your history of sort of the justice system and, and how the justice system comes to be in place. And I think, you know, as a Métis person thinking about the, that history, um, it becomes really obvious, right? Because we don't get the Canadian quote unquote justice system until after the land is violently cleared by the Northwest Mounted Police. They come into Batoche with a Gatling gun, they raise the entire town, kill many people, crush you know, Métis trying to defend our homelands against settler incursions without our consent. And then they start bringing in things like prisons. They start expanding these police services. They create the Northwest Mounted Police as an anti-Indigenous paramilitary in order to open up our lands for conquest, for expansion, and for expropriation of our resources, right? And so, you know, even, even calling it a justice system, when you think about that history, the justice system was put into place in order to continue to subjugate us, right? And I think that's, you know, when we start thinking and talking about those histories, that's really important. I think, you know, people talk about reform, but I think, you know, um, your, your long quote, Kyle, really sort of drives it home. You can't really reform a system that at its base is foundationally about maintaining injustice. So I think when we're talking about changes that we can make, they need to be like radical from the base changes. And I mean, we're really lucky too. You know, when Jamie was talking about, um, you know, European women fighting for, 
you know, generations in order to, to regain their rights and their standing in society. We're lucky enough as indigenous people and as indigenous women that all we have to do is remember, right? I think in, in Europe, they've forgotten a lot of that. It's been crushed so drastically for so long. But for us, you know, our cultures and our societies still have that strength and those memories that we can draw on, which I think is really important. So it sounds like scary work, but a lot of it is just about remembering. Absolutely. Um, yeah, j really quickly, I, you know, I, I just think, you know, in regards to, to Harold's quote, I mean, I, I don't know if there's a such thing as radical civility. So it's like, you know, if you have to make radical change, you can't really do it through the systems that exist. And I think that's sort of what Harold's trying to get at is sort of, and, and you know, I think what Molly has been saying too is just this idea of you need to completely uproot the system that currently exists in order for there to be any chance at equity. Whoa. So this is, this is a good point, because now we're turning into the conversation where we can, um, or we're turning into the part of the conversation where we can start talking about taking shape, uh, having our, our narratives start taking shape in mainstream media as well, and how to go about doing that. So I guess, Kyle, because you're involved in the CBC, how important do you think it is that indigenous people shape their representation in the media, specifically when it comes to any interaction with the justice system. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it goes without saying it's incredibly important, right? Um, uh, you know, indigenous people haven't really had a seat at the table when it comes to media representation for a long time. Um, you know, this is the obligatory part where I talk about how we've made strides, but you know, it's still not anywhere close to where we need, need it to be. Mm -hmm. um, there's this uh, saying that used to exist in media and I think still exists, although I think people would probably be a little bit afraid to say it in front of people like me or you folks today, but um, when there was, like there used to be this saying in like the 70s, especially like when indigenous people were in the media, there was only four, it was the four Ds. It was either drumming, dancing, drunk, or dead, which is so stark, that's so stark. Um, and Unfortunately, for a lot of years, true. That's what the media coverage looked like for a long time. And so when we're talking about indigenous people's role in media and sort of how we shape that as you know, specific to justice, but also in general, that wouldn't have happened if there were indigenous people at the table. There would have been stories about, you know, we do stories about all sorts of things, politics, sports, economics, you know, uh, you name it. Um, if there was an indigenous person at the table, we would be doing stories that involved indigenous people, that involved sports, that involved politics, that involved economics. Again, we're doing that a little bit today, which is great, um, but it, you know, it's, we're still a long ways away to get to a point where it's normal for us to see an indigenous person in a story that's not about specifically about indigenous issues, right? Um, you know, in regards to justice, I, you know, I think, um, you know, Jamie makes a lot of really great points about, you know, Wakotuin and, and all these ideas of, of kinship. And, you know, if there was an indigenous person seated at this table, you know, it would, it would, I think the conversations would be much more nuanced and much more interesting rather than sort of this monochromatic idea of what we know as justice today. So, um, yeah, I have, I could talk about that for hours, but I'll, I'll let somebody else go. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's, sorry. Um, it's a hot mic, uh, yeah. hot thoughts. So hot. Um, 
I think it's it's really really interesting um, to hear Kyle's perspective on this because he does work in the CBC, which I feel like is, at least in my mind, sort of like the big kahuna of Canadian media. Um, in terms of both sort of like the the work that they do sort of, you know, with news, um, but as well the work that they do driving the foundational narratives of Canada, right? And I think that's where um, not just news, but I think news in particular uh, can be really interesting and powerful sort of space to analyze, right? Because I think, you know, think about the four Ds, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I think, you know, to a large extent, the four Ds are still what we encounter when, when we encounter Indigenous people in media. Um, but I think those four Ds, when we think about it closely, like they really are part of one of the foundational stories that Canada tells about itself, right? In order to drive itself, in order to continue to be legitimate in its own eyes, Indigenous people have to be disappearing or we have to become implicated in Canadian society as decorative, right? Stories in mainstream media about, you know, drumming and dancing, which are incredibly important and central in all of our culture, I can't think of a single one where it's not, um, you know, get really flattened out into sort of like this, you know, pretty costumes they call a regalia, right? Interesting music they call her, right? You know, there's none of that sort of weight behind it. Um, and then of course the other two Ds are very much still about disappearing native people from the land. And again, who gets to count as being harmed and who gets to count as having done harm and what gets to count as harm? Right, all of these big sort of organizing questions are both organizing questions about justice, but they're also organizing questions about what constitutes Canada itself. Um, sort of from my perspective, because most of the work that I do is in sort of speculative fiction, uh, Indigenous representation in spec fic, so uh, fantasy, horror, and science fiction. Cool. I, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, if cool is, by cool you mean nerdy, yes, absolutely. I um, do. <laughs> You know, we see the same stories over and over again, as I'm sure, you know, you see the same news stories over and over again, right? You get these, and again, it's about disappearing, right? You get these narratives of, you know, this chosen white man who, you know, goes on this spirit quest and becomes more native than the native, sort of like a dancing with wolves situation. He's got to swoop in and save everybody. Um, you know, you, you get these these stories that are really grounded in sort of settler anxieties, right? Because they're not only stories that Canada tells itself about sort of its own legitimacy, they're also stories that Canada tells itself about its underlying illegitimacy. What is Canada afraid of? What are settlers afraid of? They're afraid that somebody's gonna come and do to them what they did to indigenous people, right? So you get these alien invasion narratives, like that's what that is, right? That's not, that's not fears of outer space, that's fears of indigenous people, sort of doing, doing onto them what they have done onto us. Um, and they do it in these ways that are very cliche, very flat, uh, you know, monochromatic, as to use Kyle's word. And uh, what we start to see, sort of, in, in my experience anyway, you can sort of see indigenous representation, good indigenous representation, quote unquote, and by good I mean like not terrible. Uh, it gets better and better until sort of the early to mid 90s and then it falls off again. Indigenous representation in fiction that's not done by predominantly indigenous people is getting worse, not better, which I find really fascinating. Um, and I haven't entirely thought through why that could be. Uh, but on the other hand, what we're seeing is more and more indigenous people being able to take the space, and they're not being given the space, like I wanna make that really clear. I think people are fighting for that space every step of the way. But you get 
indigenous filmmakers, indigenous writers, indigenous artists who are busting into these spaces and giving us new narratives uh, that are really fascinating and interesting and often mundane. You know, so thinking about um, like Blood Quantum, Jeff Barnaby's new zombie film, for example. Um, I'm sure there's a lot in there in terms of like textual analysis that you can do, but on its face, it's really just a standard zombie movie, but this time with native people. That's, we need that. Like, yeah, we deserve to have that, honestly. Like, let's be real. Um, you know, so you get these, like, these new types of media that are being driven by indigenous people, and it's not just having Graham Greene out there in his, like, beautiful long wig, like doing his Graham Greene thing. Graham Greene's great, by the way, no offense to him. Um, but you get people, like, we need indigenous people at every single level to create these types of media. They need to be writing, they need to be acting, they need to be doing the sound, the lighting, the cinematography, the editing, the sound, all of it, right? That's where you start getting those good narratives. I don't know why it is, but it seems like mainstream media is really unable to account for the complexity of, in well, I do know why it is, but anyway, mainstream media is unable to account for the complexity of indigenous life, I think is, is what uh, sort of at, at its base what that is. And so when we force them to confront the complexity of our lives, I think it opens up a lot of space for that radical change. I think that it's really important, um, and thank you, Molly and Kyle. Um, it's everything that you said. I already wanted to say, so I'm done. Just <laughs> yeah, <it's a laughs> goodbye, everyone. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to like also include, you know, like it is really important to have our representation in all those areas because um, it's not only to have our voices heard and to be able to share our stories and our narratives of who we are as indigenous people, but it's also important to have our younger generations to see that in our media, to see that in every forms, so that they have that empowerment to go out and achieve whatever they would li like to in this life. And I think that that's one of the the biggest things is that we have to remember who who's coming up who's our next generations and how is this going to affect our our children how are we going to affect their children and and the list goes on and i think that when we when we have these when we create these spaces and like molly mentioned we're fighting for those spaces at in some spaces, well, most spaces, you know, like sometimes we're the only indigenous person doing one job that should be a, a whole team of people that should be doing the job. And Kyle and I had that conversation, like with him at CBC and me here and everywhere, you know, I think that that's really important that, you know, like even just sitting in this circle and having the opportunity to have different perspectives on, on a topic is really important. So having those multiple perspectives is so important because as Indigenous people, we have many perspectives, we have many experiences, and, and even though we have a lot of things that are similar, we have a lot of differences within our culture. And so, those are things that we need to be able to share. And I think that, like for myself, um, I've been in the media for, for a long time um, as a model, as an advocate, as an actor. And, and those are things that um, we allow our, we push ourselves into those spaces to be. But at the same time, they're still casting roles for indigenous people in indigenous 
roles. And so that's a big thing because they used to not do that. <laughs> they used to wear wigs and color themselves to, to be able to be us on screen. And so it's a like Kyle mentioned, we have been making strides, but there's still a lot of space that needs to be taken up and a lot of opportunity for us to hold that space and to be able to give us that opportunity to, to speak on that platform in many ways. Absolutely. And one thing that I'm hearing, um, especially at the very beginning of the conversation, we were talking a lot about um, a healing component of um, perhaps indigenous justice, when we're talking about restorative justice. Um, that idea of, uh, that, that is inherent in, we have a, a responsibility as a community to make sure that individuals who need our help um, can have that help, or um, individuals who perhaps are deviating from, from the, the overall health of the group, how can we make sure that they're in alignment so that it benefits everyone, including them? Um, and one thing that I've been told is often that with indigenous people since time immemorial, our stories through our myths, through our, our, our stories even um, that, are, that take place in today, how we kind of order the chaos of our events um, in our recent past as well, those hold the laws that can help. So when it comes to indigenous peoples practicing indigenous law and having those stories be told, what I'm hearing is that it could also be beneficial for non-Indigenous peoples as well. Because one thing that I was hearing as well, if it's, if it's not working for Indigenous peoples, it could also not be working for non-Indigenous peoples as well. So it's not just an isolated thing. So when we're talking about how to create space for these conversations, for these stories, um, what, what does that look like and how can non-Indigenous peoples help create that space in a respectful way? We talk about a lot of the, the troubles of tinkering within a system, maybe even the troubles of losing ourselves of who we are at our core as Indigenous peoples um, in that fight for recognition because we're, we're struggling so much to, to, to have a space at the table that suddenly our identity as Indigenous peoples becomes reduced to just always fighting for a space at the table, which is quite reactionary to an outside force and not so much uh, who we are, but I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on that whole thing that I just said? Um, yeah, that was a long one, Hunter. I know. Um, I didn't breathe once. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, first of all, uh, to, to your point of, 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 of stories and, and healing, I, I think it's, um, it's, it's an interesting connection to make, right? And, I, and it's something that we've been talking about for, like you said, time immemorial. It's just this idea of using our stories to heal. And, you know, I remember when I was a kid um, and I wanted to be a journalist, I was like nine. Um, I didn't see anybody on TV that looked like me or my cousins or was, said they were Métis or, or Cree or anything. Um, so I just automatically assumed that that wasn't possible. And so it wasn't until I was like 14 or 15 and I saw Duncan McHugh on, the, on TV one time doing a story and I was like, oh, that's a, that's a native person, holy smokes. <laughs> so um, when we talk about representation, like it, it matters, it matters. And it matters when people who are representative of us tell our stories because it's just different. Um, you know, there are non-indigenous reporters who uh, are great reporters who tell indigenous stories. There's just nothing quite like um, having an indigenous person tell that story. It, um, you know, I go into communities sometimes and uh, people look at me weird because I, you know, I, I present as non-Indigenous. And so, um, 
you know, after after we start talking, and, and I think this happened when our first conversation, Hunter, like yeah. I think it was within like the first 10 seconds we were trying to figure out who our kin were because we're from around the same area. Yeah. And so when, after those conversations happen, there's just a wall that breaks down. And so um, when you talk about healing and stories to heal, um, having indigenous people at the table and telling these stories is hugely, hugely important. Um, you know, in regards to a system or like the system that you were talking about, how you know it, it might not even necessarily work for non-indigenous people too, uh, and sort of how you know you know how we sort of I guess navigate that. I mean, a seat at the table is a great start, right? I mean, having somebody who is native at the table talking about these stories um, and having discussions around not only media representation but also just like justice in general. And honestly, I would advocate for an indigenous person to be at every single table. Uh, that has ever existed because I, I just value their perspective so much. Um, you know, I, I just think that, I just think it's really important to do that. Um, I just wanted to share this one story. I, I remember when I was, I was driving in Muscochise, this was like last year, a year and a half ago, and I just like, I remember thinking driving in the community that it's like, I feel really privileged that I can do this um, and drive into the, into the community and like, and it just feels like a, it feels like, a, I, you feel kinship, right? Um, I got back to the newsroom that day after after I was doing a story and I was just talking about how great it was. And I had a reporter who has much more experience than me was telling me, he was like, yeah, back in the 70s, we used to go to the reserve and people used to like shoot BB guns at our vehicles and throw stuff at our vehicles. And, and uh, that just really tells you, A, the hostile relationship that Native people had with media and rightfully so i mean media went in swooped in stole their basically stole their stories for you know uh and then came out without any real um you know collaboration with the family and stuff like that um so they were rightfully hurt rightfully hurt and so that was them in response and so now that i can go into these communities and have these conversations with people and not worry about having eggs thrown up my car or whatever shows that we've made strides but uh, again, like, uh, you know, like Molly and like Jamie has said, I mean, there's still a long way to go, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I really, um, I really appreciate that perspective. Uh, I also wish there could be, actually, I wish all the tables were just like full of indigenous people, just <laughs> kicking ass, uh, or kicking and buns. being related. Kicking buns. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was fine. Yeah. Uh, but I also think it's really important to talk about the limits of representation. I think representation, while crucial, and I think, you know, I think we're still at this place where fighting for representation makes a lot of sense. Um, and indigenous stories being told is, is obviously very important. Uh, there are limits to it. And I'm gonna put my own people on blast here a little bit. Um, recently, the Manitoba Métis Federation and the MNC worked with the Royal Canadian Mint to release a Louis Riel commemorative coin. Oh yeah. Yeah, uh, which I am not thrilled about to say the least. Um, Oh yeah, just wait. Uh, but you know, and I think it's it's really important to be critical of what kinds of stories are we telling. In all of the media releases about this, it's about how Louis Riel, his important contribution to Canadian history. This is a jaw-droppingly bad narrative in my perspective. Louis Riel fought two guerrilla wars against Canada, and Canada through this coin, they're literally transforming. You know, whatever you think of Riel, he was one of our greatest and most important leaders. They're transforming him literally into capital, into the state's capital, as a coin. You know, it's a commemorative coin, but you could hypothetically be trading 
Louis Riel for goods and services. That's, that is not liberatory. This is not anti-colonial or decolonial in any sense. What stories are we telling ourselves and future generations, as Jamie mentioned, when we start to inculcate our greatest leader who fought a guerrilla war against the state into Canadianness in this way, right? Like a lot of people, and you know, I, I, I really see the perspective, a lot of people are really celebrating this as an important moment of recognition for the Métis by Canada. Is that, is that what we want to be recognized for? Do we want to be recognized if the trade-off is having us become pawns in Canada's own story about itself? And in what ways does that elide its responsibility for our people's genocide, right? And so like, when we think about representation, we think about these stories, it's so, so important that as we're fighting for these things, that we're fighting for liberatory, decolonial stories that support indigenous sovereignty and anti-colonial action and thought. Um, if we're talking about stories as being healing, I think that's so true and so important, but who are we healing and what are we healing for? If we're healing into Canadianness, what is the difference between that and assimilation? If we're healing our people, but we're not thinking about the animals, the plants, the water, the earth, the air, what are we doing? What, how, we are not fulfilling our responsibilities in those ways. And I think that as we move forward, as we do that, that fighting work, um, that we take those responsibilities up as we're doing that. We can't shut off our, our parts of our responsibilities in order to gain or win something. Um, anyway, I feel very passionately no, about that commemorative coin. But it, it's very interesting because it, it throws into question... Um, I sat down with Audrey Potras and um, Norma Spicer and we we're talking about the Métis and what they called themselves. And what I remember them saying is, we called ourselves the Otepimsuak, which means the people who own themselves. Mm -hmm. And what I was hearing is a, a, a history and a story of how do we remain um, separate and sovereign peoples in a unique relationship with other people. Um, and I thought that that was really interesting. So hearing about this coin is, is it throws that, it's just like, what? Mm -hmm. that's, that's even more complicated now. So, um, absolutely, thank you. I think, I think that the, um, the whole being able to talk and tell your story is healing. And so when we're represented in the media and able to tell our stories, um, we're able to heal. And through that process, we're also helping others heal. Um, I once was told I was, I was, I've been on my own healing journey my whole life and um, I think, I, also, I often think about this elder who told me that, you know, healing, healing comes in many forms and one of the, one of the ways that we, we start to heal is to be able to talk about it, to be able to share our story and I think that that's really important that our stories are being told by Indigenous people because at one time we weren't allowed to, to share them. At one time we weren't allowed to use our voice or our songs or our stories. And this whole concept of um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, when it came about, was to be able to share 
the stories that were never told, the stories of our survivors, the stories of the people that were, were silenced for many years. And for myself, like I'm the first generation in my family that did not go to residential school. And my mother was also a part of the 60s scoop. And so seeing all of those pieces and really trying to find the healing within myself, I think that that's one of the biggest ways that um, I guess in mainstream to be able to share our stories um, at many platforms is very important. Um, it it get, it starts to chip away at that um, decolonial way of thinking. And when we when we start to be able to have those spaces in multiple areas, and not just as Indigenous people, we, we look at, even here at Northwest, we have so many cultures from all over the world, having that intercultural space to be able to share who we are as as people you know to be able to share with each other is healing in itself and it helps to bring us together um, i was doing a session the other day on medicine wheel teachings and we're and we were talking about how every nation in the world is represented on that medicine wheel and how we're all equal and no one is bigger or better than another we're we're all at one time um creator <coughs> creator placed us in different places in the world and knew that we were all going to come together and that's one of the reasons why we're, we're faced with what we're doing is because i think that sometimes um people, and I'm not saying any, any specific culture, people um, feel like they need to be bigger than another and that competition piece. And so with that, some voices are not heard. And so when we, when we look at that in a bigger picture and look at here just a microscope here in Canada, it's happening to Indigenous people around the globe that they, they're facing the same things of colonialism. And, and how, do, how do we heal as not just as a nation within Canada, but also world because there's so many people that are hurt and that are going through trauma and that are going through healing and the way that we're able to share that is through stories and one of the things that I think that as we grow, we've grown up, we've seen that technology change and be able to share it in different ways through the media and being able to represent ourselves in different ways is, is amazing. But we still have that, we still have that barrier of being able to have that space. So creating those spaces and allowing us to use our voices and allowing us to use our knowledge allows for our ancestors to be heard as well absolutely um any final thoughts before we we call it um i wanted to just add a little bit to uh, what molly was saying earlier about um you know some some media representation that we've had today and um i do agree that there you know that it seems that there are there is bad media representation for sure and um but you mentioned uh, blood quantum um we we had um the director on, on our, our show, I, I can remember his Twitter handle, but I can't remember his name right Jeff Barnaby. Um, <laughs> he, uh, at Trip Gore. The, so he is, um, uh, he was on our show about this, talking about blood quantum. 
And he was just like he was telling us how shocked he was that nobody had come up with that idea before. Um, just this idea of uh, you know uh, an indigenous community, um, you know, sort of being like the last refuge for you know the zombie apocalypse. Um, and that's exactly what we're talking about when we talk about representation and when we talk about a seat at the table because the reason why that idea hadn't been done before is because there's hardly any indigenous people doing that stuff before 10 years ago. Um, and so, and we're talking about, you know, other sort of media. I mean, like, obviously, you know, the big mainstream medias have made strides, some of them anyways. Um, but even like, even native people on their own, um, you know, Molly's a perfect example of this with her podcast, Métis Space, like, um, indigenous people are just doing it themselves now. And it's, it's incredibly powerful and incredibly, um, yeah, empowering uh, to listen to this type of stuff and 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 you know and, and, and Molly's just doing it um, like Molly and, and Chelsea started doing it I like maybe you can talk a little bit more about the impetus of it but it you know it just became so much more than I think um, you know like the you guys have just been, been continuing it for so long and like the land back thing is incredible and 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 so it's just been amazing to watch so um, you know it's just been awesome to to see you know modern media representation and indigenous people doing that themselves um, you know, I, I, I do, I do wonder with the Louis Riel thing, like, you know, um, it sounds like the MNF was at, at the table, but, you know, you just really have to wonder about, um, you know, thinking about spatial awareness a little bit, but, um, yeah, I just wanted to share that, like, you know, I think it's, it's improving, um, but, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, there's lots of work for us to do, um, and CBC included, so. Absolutely. Um, I want to thank you all so much. Um, hopefully we get that thought. I'll, I'll stall for you. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for your thoughts, your perspectives, for your stories. Um, this was a great conversation, and I am very thankful. So, hi, hi. Yeah. Circle of Knowledge was recorded at the Norquest College Innovation Studio and is hosted by me, yours truly, Connor Kerr. Production and editing by Corey Stroder. Theme song is Eagle Rock by Wes Hutchinson. Special thanks to the Edmonton Community Foundation, whose generous sponsorship made the Indigenous Speaker Series and the Circle of Knowledge podcast a reality. Lastly, and most importantly, big shout out to all the speakers who have been involved. We are incredibly grateful for the knowledge and time you share to make this series a possibility. Thoughts? Comments? Questions? Anything else regarding today's Circle of Knowledge episode? We'd love to hear from you. Contact us at podcast at norquest.ca.